Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to episode 47 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you again live from our, our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And riding shotgun tonight is longtime friend of the show, Nick Weaver. Nick, welcome aboard. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we get started with our guests tonight, and this is kind of a big show, um, give us the latest on the, on the last time we talked to you. We were working on Project Razor. What's the latest on Razor? Oh, wow. Um, so the latest news on Razor is the reception has been pretty good so far. We were about a little over 90 days out from the public open sourcing. We just uh, this week actually open sourced the microkernel, which is the uh, in-memory client we use for discovery. Cool. Very good. So it's uh, it's it's getting... 100% getting... it's open source, yeah. Excellent. So the whole thing's yeah. open source. Uh, it's getting, getting traction on Git. You got people... Um, pulling it and making changes to it and yeah and um we got one if i can say one use one case that's actually kind of cool is um we got uh some attention from cern the guys that run the large um hadron collider you know the higgs boson yep. discovery guys they uh are actually huge puppet labs uh customers and they've expressed some interest in actually using razor for all of their hundreds of thousands of nodes deployment so uh that's spinning up pretty soon here and that's kind of cool very very cool well, listen, uh, Nick. You know, a couple of week, a couple of it's probably a couple of months back, we were talking to uh, Ivan Pekulnik. We were talking about new networks and SDNs, and uh, you know, still a lot of questions from the, the networking crowd, the sort of traditional and, and pushing the envelope networking crowd. So we thought we'd dive into software-defined networks or SDNs a lot more uh, this week with our guest. Um, so we're we're happy to have this week uh, Kyle Forster, one of the co-founders of Big Switch Networks. So Kyle, welcome aboard. Oh, thanks, Brian. So. Kyle, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got a you've got a pretty interesting background, and then give us a quick introduction for anybody that doesn't know Big Switch Networks. You know, who are you guys? What are you trying to do? Yeah, sure, sure. So, with my own background, I uh, I came to Big Switch. I actually spent most of my career over at Cisco. Okay. Went to a small startup with a crew of Cisco folks. Uh, when I was moving back to the Bay Area. Uh, my co-founder Guido Eppenzeller and I went out for lunch. The two of us had been friends since back in grad school days. We actually had offices right next to each other. Okay. Uh, you know, we had stayed in touch ever since, and you know, he started talking about the research that his team at Stanford was doing, and I kept thinking back on all these intractable problems that we were trying to solve as I was leaving Cisco, and it was like a light went off. I mean, I, I've got to say, you know. I, I went back from the lunch. I, I downloaded all the research that, that he and the team had written over the last couple of years. I downloaded the open source over the weekend and started playing around with it. You know, a, a couple of months later, there were, there were a few of us huddled in the, in the back of a VC's office on Sandell Road. Okay. And that was the, the work that was the, the what do they, they call it, the Clean Labs project over at Stanford that was looking at things like OpenFlow and, and things like that, correct? Yeah, the, the Clean Slate Lab, it was called. That okay. was the lab at Stanford that Guido led that, uh, that, that incubated OpenFlow. Okay. Well, very cool. So, um, so you've been on on sort of both sides of the fence. The the big vendor that had kind of the traditional evolution of architecture. You got to see what went on over there, how they acquired, how they you know scaled and, and solved problems. And now you're you're coming at it from a much different perspective, uh, very software centric perspective, obviously. So, let's let's sort of dive into to SDN a little bit. You know, um, you'd have to have been under a rock this week to not hear some of the news that was going on around SDN in the market. Obviously, uh, uh, one of your competitors got acquired by uh, VMware this week for a very large uh, sum of money. 
Um, but before we go, before we go into that and sort of make this all about valuations and, and things like that, let, let's talk about you know Big Switch's view on SDN. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions and viewpoints, and is it about a protocol? Is it about tunneling? Is it about uh, you know wh- where should it start? Where should you know what, what's what's Big Switch's take on on, on SDN and, and architecture and, and those types of things? Sure. The uh, you know I think the first thing that I go back to is to say SDN itself is is really a broad umbrella term without a tight technical definition. Now there are all kinds of new things that are going on in the data center, new ways of building networking equipment that are much type, much more tightly technically defined that fit underneath that umbrella. Uh, but I'd say SDN itself, even as a broad term, I, I think it's still useful because to me it's a it, it represents a movement that. I guess a technical philosophy around separation of the control and the data plane, yep. which is a really interesting technical sort of philosophical way of, hey, here's a different way of building networking devices, and that'll lead us into a different way of building networks. Okay. This kind of technical philosophy aspect to it. Right. At the same time, to me, it's kind of a, you know, the reason that this has so much legs is because, frankly, if you look at the the folks who have been involved in pushing, in my mind, the major technical pillars of SDN, if you look at the open networking, you know, originally the Stanford team, but then the open networking foundation that was pushing OpenFlow, it's fundamentally being driven by people who, who design and operate very large data centers. Okay. And that's a big deal because it's basically a, a, a group of people who have deep operational experience saying the current networking technologies for us are, are so far from adequate that this isn't going to take an evolution, this is going to take a revolution. And so, you know, SDN becomes branded as, hey, there's this really bad need to think about revolutionary new ways of building networks. And at the same time, there's kind of this technical philosophy on, hey, we have this general direction for how to build new networking equipment. Okay. So, obviously, the the, the ONF, the, you know, Open Network um, uh, Foundation that you were talking about is, uh, your teams are, are part of it as a, as a contributor and, and part of the, the, the forums and the discussions that are going on. But it's also... Folks like Google and some of the largest service providers, Yahoo and and others. So, at what point does does SDN? Obviously, for them, they've got different types of problems than say even the largest enterprises have in terms of, you know, how they have to operate, the way they try and uh, you know associate cost with revenue or or associate cost with business challenges. Is this a is this a set of technologies that's really mostly for a segment of the market or does it have applicability to to a broader market segment for things maybe that aren't super web scale huge data centers you know, it's a great question I, I think I'd add you know, the the founding members were all the hyperscale types uh, but a whole series of enterprises have been increasingly active in open networking foundation I think Goldman Sachs actually just joined a couple months ago okay uh, and I think they're the first of several if you look at the, just the evolutionary path of the of the technology you know three I'd say three, four years ago, this was something that was really being driven by academic research. Mm-hmm. And in those really early days, some of the hyperscale crew wound, wound up getting involved. I, I, I joined on when the, you know, when the OpenFlow standards body was 16 people, give or take, and it was kind of whoever could find parking outside the computer science building at Stanford. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like if you couldn't find parking, then like you probably sat out that day and like went to lunch instead. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's kind of an academic thing to begin with, but then about you know about three years ago was when a team from Google started sitting in on the standards meetings, 
and that changed the tenor a little bit. I think a you know a number of folks kind of perked up at that point. Sure. Suddenly was this you know they had an intractable problem to solve. How do you, how do, you do a million MAC address Hadoop job? It just it, it blows out every networking device under the sun. So. You know, from that one specific problem, though, it got the attention of a handful of other hyperscale data-centered folks who were looking at, if not that million MAC address uh, Hadoop job problem, similar problems or interesting problems with large-scale infrastructure as a service. The big, the big Ben problem. <laughs> ben problem. <laughs> I mean, if you count, you know, so three years ago, it was sort of infrastructure, the massive-scale infrastructure as a service. Then two years ago, it started being driven a little bit more by I'd say by kind of really by much more enterprise needs. Okay. And th- at this point now, this year is when the fruition, I think, of a lot of the, that standards work that was being done is now coming to market. Okay. So it's a straight evolution path. At this point, this is very much a, much more an enterprise technology. Okay. So you're, so, so you are seeing people that are coming to you. I, I you know, I've heard from from various groups that that maybe are, are still in kind of traditional network operations. They're kind of saying, you know, I don't know what all the use cases are, but what you're seeing from from talking to your early beta customers, from talking to folks that are coming to the to the ONF, that they're they've got very sort of distinct sets of problems. Are they are they more about um, kind of speed that they want to solve problems? Are they really about kind of new ways of routing and, and doing, you know, kind of core networking things? What's, what's, the, what's the essence of the types of problems that you're starting to see evolve out of this, you know, beyond the million Mac Hadoop problem? Yeah, it's a great question. The, uh, so I'd say there's, there's sort of one cluster of problems that, uh, that I'll put in one big bucket of, and I'll just call it network virtualization. Okay. Uh, and so we see a ton of interest around there. But then there's also this big long tail of problems where hey, it's really easy to draw on a whiteboard what a package should do, but really, really, really hard to get today's networking equipment to do it. Okay. And we've all been part of a design where we just designed ourselves into a hole for one reason or another. So I think what we're seeing today is the emergence of, you know, certainly on our side, certainly acquisition that just happened, the, you know, a ton of interest in using SDN for network virtualization. Mm-hmm. A lot of for infrastructure as a service type build. Right. You know, just because, you know, today's networking equipment just doesn't stand up to infrastructure as a service requirements. Uh, but I think over time we'll start to, you know, I think to me that's the first application of many. It's the first real beachhead, but then there's a whole series of long tail apps. And in that long tail, my guess is that there's going to be another major app in there uh, that we'll see sometime in the next 24 months. If I, if I can add a question, where do you see the gap on the infrastructure as a service from, you know, present state kind of your choices and the different interactions and kind of where SDN's at now and where it's going. And I'm thinking more of like the difference between the public cloud with the hyperscale cloud guys, but no more like the private cloud guys, right? The open stack deployments for like Goldman or for someone else. What are the, what are the infrastructure as a service gaps that SDN helps to solve? So if you look at the you know, if you were trying to design a, a data center network to me five years ago, you would probably assume you know somewhere around thirty servers, give or take, in a rack, right? Around thirty MAC addresses that you have running up and down. If we look at you know a, a, high, a virtualized rack today in an enterprise, at least all the customers that I'm dealing with generally are running somewhere two hundred to two hundred fifty VMs per rack, right? So that's a factor of ten increase in five years in the number of MAC addresses. And if we just look next year a huge number of the folks that I'm dealing with are trying to figure out ways to get up to 2,000 VMs per rack. So yeah. now some, you know, the needs that you have at the, you know, the top of rack switch starts to look an awful lot more like an aggregation switch. And the V switches and all these chassis start to look a whole lot more like edge switches. 
So do you see the, the proprietary stuff that and, – and being that I work for EMC, um, and I'm going to open the basket a bit here. But do you see the proprietary stuff that VMware's done over the last you know, six, seven years with vSwitches and distributed virtual switches and the plugins of the 1000V? Where do you see that changing with SDN? How do you see SDN affecting stuff like that with competition from OpenStack and Eucalyptus and CloudStack? Sure. I think that you can go really far if you control the vSwitch alone, but I don't think that you can go all the way for what, uh, to what most enterprises need. Interesting. If, you, if you're just doing networking touching the vSwitch, fascinating things you can do. Don't get me wrong. Look, there are really, really interesting things that you can do there. But it doesn't really help you with your storage problems. It doesn't really help you with any bare metal host that you want to put in. It doesn't really help you with any L4 to L7 services that are being done in hardware that need to get inserted into a virtual network. So it kind of comes with a lot of limitations. And the other piece is there's kind of this ugly performance, you know, boogie monster sit, you know, sitting down below. And you've got to figure that out somehow by reusing elements of the physical network. In the same way VXLAN reuses multicast in the physical network in order to overcome performance issues with, with broadcast. There are a whole series of those that show up. It's my belief, you know, stepping back for a second, it's my belief that kind of real, the reason why SDN is really important is because it's the first time there's a real cohesive framework here that lets us control both hypervisor switches and physical switches at the same time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, very cool. So is it, you know, so as you're explaining this to people, as you're talking to, you know, network architecture teams, is that a, you know, you made an analogy just a second ago where you sort of said, uh, the you know the hypervisor switch is sort of becoming the the new access switch. The top of rack switch is really sort of becoming the new um, you know distribution switch. And, and there's always been debates. You know, should should there be two tiers or three tiers and so forth? You know, the distribution switches, at least in the, the sort of traditional model, were always really kind of the big workhorses in terms of being able to be kind of the first place to really apply intelligence, the first place to to do you know, partitioning and, and traffic steering and, and uh, you know, rate limiting and so forth. I mean, is that, is that kind of an analogy sometimes you have to use as you're, as you're talking to customers? Or, you know, do you sort of have to say, you know what, let's erase everything that's on the board today because if we, if we keep using those old analogies, you're not really going to see, you know, where the, the ability of these, these new technologies can go. Is it, what's the conversation look like that you have with your customers? Sure. You know, I think we're we're big fans. The SDN camps kind of kind of split real fast into folks who say, "Hey, look, this is so revolutionary. We need to create a, an entirely new set of abstractions, an entirely new way of thinking about the network." And folks, and I think we're in a little bit more of the second camp that says, "Yeah, this is a revolutionary way of, of of building networks underneath." But you know, hey, how can we how can we get there using the tools that we've got to you know using tools that people are very comfortable with today. So, so that it's not kind of a hey, one day the whole world just changed on us. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, think, I think following your analogy, you know, I, I always think of the, you know, some of the golden design rules of being, hey, do a lot of my policy at the edge, do my traffic engineering at the ag and core. Uh, you know, I kind of always sort of come back to the, that set of rules. I think that set of rules very much still applies. Just, just where the edge is has changed a little bit. Okay. Do you, uh, I got a question. Do you, so for a lot of network guys, I mean, this is. It's not a. I wouldn't say it's a massive hurdle to kind of understand the new way of doing things. But how do you see the vehicle to that for everybody outside of the hyperscale, like your enterprise customers, your your hardcore old school network dudes? How do they educate themselves? What's the vehicle for that? Is it is it the big companies, the Cisco's and the Junipers that eventually bring that into the enterprise, or is it going to be 
more of this new scale commoditization, you know, kind of like how Linux works, right? It's open, you can, everybody can learn, there's teams and projects and groups you can go to. I mean, what's the vehicle to the enterprise to change that mindset? So I think there, there are three things here that to me are going to make this, uh, that are going to really accelerate the up, uptake here. Just, just bring, the, you know, bring the world up the learning curve. I think the first is that around, in and around SDN, there's a, there's a lot more open source than there is around traditional networking. I mean, we, we even launched a, a big hunk of our controller. A, 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 we open sourced it as Project Floodlight. You download it, it actually comes with a full network simulator so that you can actually get a network up and running. I mean, on my, on my Mac, I can, get, I can simulate somewhere on 30 switches and about 50, 60 hosts, something like that. Yeah, I've, I've actually, I downloaded and played with it a little bit. It's actually pretty awesome. I will give you props for that. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. You know, something like that, this means, hey, look, it's a, it's a web download, right? So you can get a simulator up and running with actually a full-fledged controller instead of having to go out and drop, I don't know how many, tens of thousands of dollars kidding out a lab. So that's just, we, we've got 6,000 flood downloads of Floodlight, right? Excel, I mean, learning curve is accelerated that way. The other thing is SDN, sure, they're the big apps that go smack in the middle of mission-critical infrastructure as a service builds, but already we're starting to see take-up of smaller apps, things that do... You know, offline functions like network tapping. Um, you know, one of our yeah, yeah, one of our colleagues a patch panel. You know, you can turn a ten gig switch into a patch panel that's controlled by an iPhone. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of really useful tools. You know, just not sexy, but just really, really useful small tools here, as well as some of the really big apps. Okay, now. So you know you 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 know you've been talking you've talked about floodlight floodlights you know basically like you said you took um, a chunk of, of what you guys are going to probably eventually turn into your commercial version of of the big switch controller but you got it out there early you you, you opened it to the open source community um, and I've seen in some of the interviews you've given that that you're seeing some very very unique applications written on top of that you just mentioned a couple of them what's the you know who are those SDN developers today are they uh, you know, versus say the SDN operators, are they are they a lot of the same people? Is is the SDN developer base more the folks that you know were doing Nagios kind of things or or other stuff like that? What's what's that community look like? Uh, the uh, so it is totally open source. There's no registration involved at all. So you know the stuff that I know comes from hanging out in the forums, comes from you know, sort of the casual meetups comes from sort of the casual spots where we're, where we're speaking and a lot of people come up and talk about floodlight. So let me just say this is far from a scientific study here. Yep. Uh, but it's my sense that the community breaks down into three, you know, kind of roughly three groups. They're the folks who download it just because they want to use it, right? They don't want to write code. They just want to download something and use it. So like it has a, you know, we just open sourced a quantum plugin. And so you can download this thing, and actually you can use this for, uh, you know, for effectively uh, think of it like an actual replacement for quantum. Okay. Uh, or that's for, for OpenStack. You know, there's a second community out there that, like you just said, the Nagios crew, right? Folks who have hacked on software that's in and around networking for a while. And there, there's actually some super cool inventions that are coming up from that part of the community. And I think that part of the community is just a fascinating group to spend time with. The, the third part of the community is interesting. The third part of the community are not so much networking folks, but a lot of cloud folks who find the traditional networking paradigms just a real pain in the neck when it comes to integrating them with cloud software. So okay. a very interesting crew because it's fundamentally not a networking crew, but they, fun, they see, hey, wow, here are a bunch of really easy to use REST and Java APIs so I can get the job done in the network that otherwise I would be you know, doing a bunch of expect scripts across, across CLI. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
So uh, let's, uh, you know, um, you know we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of where the, the industry is going. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of folks, there's still, you either kind of have the problem today that, that you're absolutely looking at it. There's some that are, are, are you know, obviously trying to learn about it. And it's very cool that um, the product's there and it's, a, you know, it's, it's the open source versions there. You can go learn. There's a lot of very good tutorials around it. The documentation's very good. Can we talk a little bit about what's going on with, with Big Switch Networks itself? And I mean, you guys are still in, in stealth mode or semi-stealth mode. Um, you know, Howie writes some things on, on his blog, <laughs> Howie Zhu, who's your uh, VP of engineering. Um, you know, as you guys are, are, are trying to figure out, you know, when to ship product, what, what to do, you know, how do you, how do you figure out these days how much time to spend with the community? Because obviously if you, if you come out with product uh, that, that people can plug into very, very quickly, that works versus, you know, the amount of time you have to spend going out, working with early customers. And I mean, how, how does that balance work for, you know, like you said, a, a, a startup company, you know, small company that's got limited resources or, you know, a finite number of resources? Yeah. You know, is the answer not much sleep help? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's it's unique because it's, you know, we're starting to get into these these class of of, uh, of vendors or technology vendors that that are some mix of open source and and commercial and, and and those are very very different business models right and mixing them is a very interesting approach yeah you know absolutely I think our it's a it's constantly an interesting question for us to figure out we generally have this model of hey we develop we develop code for the commercial controller mm-hmm and then we we pick and choose from amongst the code that you know the commercial train is sort of leading, and then we pick and choose from there, and we pick and choose areas to open source. Okay. Uh, so a lot of the work that's actually open source is stuff that we were you know was in the commercial controller even you know six months ago, even in some cases actually just a few months ago. So it's it's one of these things where for us it's actually a, it's a little bit less of an either or, and it's a little bit more of a when. Okay. The nice thing is that a lot of our real, a lot of our biggest customers, the reason that they're with us is because we do have this open source core philosophy. They do see the product that we're building is, you know, over time, more and more of the product that we're building today, even the commercial product, more and more of that goes down to the open source community. They see a vibrant open source community where we're we're very aggressive about accepting patches from the community. Yeah, you know, that's good. Yeah, that's a big deal. Model. Yeah, some companies give our model by basically saying, "Hey, look, yeah, we're open source, but you know, we don't actually take outside code." We, we we tried to do the exact opposite very early on. Okay, and and have you made sort of a final decision or a business model decision? Is is it going to be you know sort of a hybrid? You've got you're going to always release the open source, and then you'll have the commercial version, or is that still in flux? The uh, no, we're I, it's it's really the first. I mean, we kind of, when we started the business, we knew we wanted to be an open source core business. Uh, we thought that that would be a really important. You know, there are two things. First of all, we thought it would be important for the business because SDN is so new. Having open source out there will help a lot of people get up to speed really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would help drive a very, very large ecosystem. So there were kind of some very business, re- very commercial reasons why we did it. Sure. But there was also a really big, I've got to say, this kind of company philosophy reason behind it. You know, uh, the, the founding crew was myself, but most of the uh, an awful lot of the team was coming straight out of Stanford, was coming straight out of, I'd say, kind of distinguished engineering style positions at various companies, and really came out with a very strong philosophical sort of engineering bent that this is just a, a, a better, a, I mean, I don't want, want to sound too soapboxy, but it, 
it's just such a better way to build networking equipment that I think a lot of the folks really wanted the world to see that. Okay. So it, it's kind of a, such a core philosophy here that we don't even really question it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, having, you know, I, I have a long background at Cisco. So, so when you hear it from a, from a network company perspective, yeah, it sounds very unusual. If, if you were to flip that over and go talk to anybody who's li- been living in the sort of application or, or you know, server uh, infrastructure space for a while, uh, I, I don't think anybody would, uh, would disagree with you that it's, you know, the, the open source way of, of building that is, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. I mean, you get, you get better code, you get better security, it, you know, you tend to get people that are passionate about it, so they tend to want to write better things. They're, uh, you know, it's all out in the open, so they're, they're prideful about what they're building. And uh, so, no, I mean, I, I think it just probably sounds unusual because in the, in the network community where it's very, very hardware-centric and it's always been proprietary, uh, it's really different. It's, you know, it's a really radical sort of model, but uh, I applaud you guys for doing it. It's a, especially if it's, if it's sort of core to your DNA, that's very cool. Oh, thanks a ton. It's one of these things, you know, a lot of people that work here, a common quote is, hey, this, you know, yeah, there's a networking company, but working here, it feels a lot like working for Google in the early days. Okay. Uh, we actually have a former product manager from Google Labs. It's actually it's in about 10 feet away from me. Okay. Uh, it's a company culture that we tried to build, and I think that just shows up in the product. Gotcha. So, so I got a question along that line. So I don't know if you saw the Google Fiber announcement today. I, you probably did, being a networking guy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I saw a couple of the write-ups. Just uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious if the if the SDN how much effect that has what Google's done internally over the last couple of years has to do with that fiber project from a cost standpoint. So the yeah, you know, the there there have been public actually of about a fair number of the details for what they've been doing around SDN uh, across their fiber backbone. The, the most public, uh, the most. The most public presentation I think I've seen, Chris Hostla from Google gave a presentation at the last Open Networking Summit, the summit put on by, by, the, by the ONF, you know, basically the big SDN summit. And he said, hey, here is what is in, you know, out of the six OpenFlow projects that, that Google is working on today, here's one of the six. It is fully in production. It has been in production for, I think at that point it was six months, something like that. That was, uh, the, that was the big WAN project? That was a big WAN project. Yeah. It was pretty wild to, to, to see somebody come up and you know, see a backbone that size that is now 100% SDN. Now, now, when you're talking about stuff that's that, that, it's at, at that scale, and you know everything doesn't have to be a Google scale because that, that tends to sort of skew a lot of the discussions, yeah. um, you, you, know, you, you immediately start getting into conversations about high availability and, and with things, you know, when you separate the data plane from the control plane, now you've got you've got a different sort of way you have to look at controller HA and obviously the databases behind there. What's, you know, what, what's the current uh, state of the art in, in, in controller technology in terms of redundancy, high availability? Um, and, and where do you see that going? Sure. You know, I think that the short answer is I actually think it's, you know, maybe because most of the time that I worked at Cisco, I'll, I spent actually my whole career at Cisco working on centralized control plane products uh, between cellular and wireless. Uh, I, I'm fundamentally convinced actually building an HA system with separation of control and data plane is actually easier. It's different, but it's actually easier to build an HA, a, a highly resilient system. Uh, if you step back from that for one sec, the, there's this clean, pretty clear architecture emerging. You know, this isn't just our architecture. I think any, any of us that are really close to SDN approach, you see kind of three tiers. You see this data plane tier of physical switches and hypervisor switches. You see this controller tier 
And the controller tier tends to be look more like an SDK. I mean, the controllers don't come out really as finished products. They come out as developer SDKs. And then you see these application networking applications on top. And it's the networking apps that are the finished end user products. And so the HA strategy, you know, certainly ours, I think more and more controllers out there have a lot of rich set of libraries to say, hey, here's a here's a framework, HA framework underneath. And then it's up to the application on top to use that. So like our, our commercial applications, for example, use underneath the covers all, all of our HA libraries. But it's really up to the app writers. I've got to say though, I mean, having been through this on a you know, bunch of products at Cisco and now going through this on products here. The development of truly high-scale, truly resilient systems is so much faster in this framework. It is night and day. Interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, and, and we're, we're sort of getting near near that time frame when uh, I know you're very, very busy and, and we're sort of hitting that time spot that the show tends to work in. Um, I wonder if I can ask you one last question, and, and uh, we'll sort of come back to the business side of this. Um, you know, with with you know Nasira's recent acquisition, a big number. Cisco's investment in in CME again, you know, a, a a large number to begin with. Another large number that could be, you know, the market's sort of set, uh, starting to set valuations. But, but more importantly, you've got, you, you know, the the data center space, the cloud space is a lot of really big. It's it's a big war at this point. It's a lot of big companies. It's it's Google, it's Microsoft, it's Amazon and Oracle and you know, you spent a lot of time working for Mike Volpe, um, so you got to see firsthand, you know, the front lines of, of M&A, the thinking behind large companies. You know, when this stuff's going on, um, and I'm as, sort of asking you to speculate a little bit, what's, what's, the, what's the kind of thinking that goes on uh, at a large company? Let, let's say you're, you know, you're HP and you're watching this and you're going, wow, I'm in the network space, but I'm not in that space. You know, what's the... What goes on in the M and A rooms when when you're talking about a really big trend that may end up being, you know, a couple of years to really materialize? What's their thinking in terms of, you know, uh, R and D investment, this kind of investment, getting left behind? I mean, what, what what have you seen in the past, and what might you expect is the thinking going on in those guys' heads? It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of crazy from the position you're in now, but I'm kind of, you know, you, you've seen this side of it. Obviously, you guys are strategizing about it. The, uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to comment on any of my partners, obviously, uh, strategy specifically. But I think when I think of a bigger company and when I think of what, what, they, you know, what they do with their M&A function just to, as an observer, you know, some companies just have the strategy of saying, hey, we're going to use M&A to... You know, to get ahead of the market. Hey, you know, we have so much market intelligence because we are so big. We're in so many customers. We can predict the future much better than anybody else. So we can spot companies while they're still small uh, and pick them up and bring them in. Mm-hmm. So that's only one philosophy. Uh, another philosophy is to say, hey, we're going to sit back. We're going to wait, and on purpose, you know, we're going to we we're going to let all of the risk go out of the market. And as soon as this market's a hundred million dollar market then we're going to buy our way into it because at that point it's going to be too late for us to spin up our own engineering to catch up. And I think you just find companies that use their M&A on that entire spectrum, some that use it to get ahead when they think the market's, when they think the market's right around the corner and some that use it to, to play a very low-risk strategy. I, I really think it's all over the board. And, and do you think, you know, with, with so many more things going open source and, and like you said, the speed at which the development of this is happening, do, do you think, that radically changes the timeline that, that you'd expect some of the big companies to respond, or is that still pretty pretty traditional? You think? 
think so. You know, I, I, I think there's a, I think there's a big war in networking brewing, uh, and I think it's brewing in between the hypervisor folks and the physical networking folks. Uh, and I, th- I think it's one of these. It's 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 been going on under the covers for two, three years now, but the, the analysts that cover the different, the areas are very different. The vocabulary that covers the areas are very, very different. And so I think a lot of the vendors didn't, you know, it, the public didn't totally realize that there was increasingly a war going on between the hypervisor crew and the physical networking crew. And that war just suddenly, that kind of, that cold war uh, just got very, very, very hot. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. It's going to be a it's, it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, and, and like every technology trend, there's going to be some winners. There's going to be some some losers. There's going to be uh, you know a lot of a lot of opportunity. Probably probably that's that's the big thing. There's a lot of opportunity for you know companies like yourself to you know really change the landscape. There's opportunities for you know technologists of all uh, you know all skill sets to sort of figure out where they're going to where they're going to plan their next three four years worth of work and uh it's a very cool time it's a it's it's fun having you know worked at cisco myself for a long time it's it's cool that networking is back to being something people are talking about and 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 what the network can do to enable things so um so kyle thank you very much for your time tonight um nick thanks for the time as well uh we're out of time for this week um so kyle real quick um you guys are obviously going to be in the news quite a bit but but if folks want to kind of uh, you know, engage around what uh, Big Switch is doing or places where you're going to be speaking. Where can they find out what's going on uh, with you, with Big Switch, and what's going on in the uh, in the SDN and OpenFlow world? The uh, you know, so on Twitter, we're at Big Switch News. Uh, we're actively putting more and more of our upcoming events up on the website, uh, and then we have a whole series of public e- public email aliases that are up on the site that are their easiest ways to get in touch. Okay, very cool. And we've got links to the. The, uh, the floodlight uh, code and, and some of the other things. So, well, again, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, folks, for everybody listening, you can follow us on Twitter at the Cloudcast Net. Uh, you can obviously reach us on the web at the Cloudcast.net and then all the millions and zillions of social network places that you can download the show. So, for Nick and Kyle, thank you so much for everybody for listening and have a great night. Bye.